Welcome to the Well SGV podcast. We exist to multiply followers of Jesus rooted in the gospel who worship, walk, and witness to God's glory. Here's our message for the week. You know, these next four Sundays, we are, uh, like I said, we are going into Advent season. And uh, I already kind of uh, emailed the church a little bit, but Advent means simply coming. And the mood of this Advent season is one of expectation, it's of hope, it's of longing, uh, it's of waiting upon the Lord. And uh, you will notice that the color of the candles is purple. And the reason why is because purple is associated with repentance. Uh, It's associated with preparation and sacrifice. And this is what uh, Advent really signifies. When we think about Advent, what we are doing is we're taking a step back and we're looking at the world around us. And we see that the world around us oftentimes is very broken. There's a lot of pain, there's injustice, suffering. Uh, we've seen this in the world around us, but we've seen it in our own lives as well today. Uh, some of you, as you enter into this uh, place, there are things that you're experiencing, uh, some pains and sufferings in your own life. And what we all yearn for in this kind of season is we yearn for hope. We long for a world that's going to be made right again. And uh, we also, at the same time, come and we confess that this world is broken, but we also have broken it ourselves. Uh, We have broken it with our own sin. And so just as we look at the world around us, we at the same time look at our own hearts and say, Lord, um, I need the hope of your forgiveness and your redemption, your grace in my own life as well. So I come, and I I just come with this um, heart of repentance and humility before you. And so this is what Advent is really all about. Uh, It's really a time that we are looking uh, with expectation and hope. And Jesus will come back. And when he comes back, he will come as the Lion of Judah, and he will truly make the world right again. He will bring his justice and his righteousness. So uh, this is what we are looking at. Well, the passage that we want to start off with and that I chose, and you might think, why in the world would Pastor David choose a bunch of names, right, to start off? And this is kind of a weird passage in many ways. And that is because it's simply where the New Testament starts. Matthew chapter 1. And I'll kind of go into this, explain a little bit more. But what I want to share with you uh, through this is that the coming of Christ really gives us hope for eternal life and everyday life. It gives us hope for eternal life and everyday life. This is what we're going to find in this seemingly random list of names here. If you're like me, the first few words of a book or the first few maybe scenes of the movie are like make it or break it, right? Like, if the first few words of the book or the first scenes don't capture your attention, like, forget it. I'm not interested in watching the rest. And I remember when my family and I, 
uh, when the kids were younger and they were growing up, you know, I would have this movie, you know, we would have our family movie nights, and when we did that, uh, I would choose a movie, uh, sometimes that the kids go, oh, dad, no, I don't want to watch this, oh, that looks so boring, or whatever, right? You remember that, Maddie? Okay, yeah, she does. And, uh, but I institute... I instituted something because I knew the movie would be good, okay? Like, I, I choose winners. <laughs> so anyway, I knew the movie. So do you remember, uh, I instituted a rule for our family movie night. It's called the 10-minute rule. And I said, okay, you may think this is boring, but just give it 10 minutes. And uh, if you don't like it, if you don't want to keep watching it after 10 minutes, then we can stop. And they always watched to the end of the movie. <laughs> okay, like 90% of the time, 90% of the time, okay. Um, but that was our 10-minute rule, and uh, yeah, like mostly it worked, mostly it worked, right? And so when you look at this genealogy, right, Matthew chapter 1, you know, you have to ask yourself this question. There are many ways that God could have captured our attention, you know, announcing that Jesus is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He's the Savior who's come. Of all the ways that Matthew, the very first words of the New Testament, could start off, why would he start off with a genealogy, a list of names that are really unfamiliar to, unfamiliar to us, that are really hard to pronounce, and quite frankly, that's kind of boring? I mean... If we look at it, right? Why would he start off this way? Well, the reality is that when Matthew's hearers would have heard this or when they read this, it was not, it would have the very opposite effect. It would have completely have captured the attention of the first century Jewish audience. For the Jewish people, the genealogical records were of absolute utmost importance. This is how they defined their identity. Just like today, the way that we would maybe identify our identity or to kind of to show people who we are is we give them our resume, right? So here's my resume, here's my education, here's my degrees, here's my work experience, all my skill sets, you know, strengths. All that, all that kind of stuff, and this is who I am. We kind of present this to people. And, uh, you know, this, is, this was for the, the Jewish people, though, the way that they identified identity was not through a resume, but through a genealogy. Your family of origin. That is, that more than anything identified who you really were. Uh, in Korean culture, right, if you, you know, if my children or whoever, they bring home a prospective uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, guarantee the first question that parents will want to ask is, who is your family? <laughs> right? Who are their parents? Like, what, what's your family background? Right? You know that, right? The next question is, did they graduate from Harvard or Yale? Okay, <laughs> but that's the second question. But first of all is, like, what, what is your, their family background? Now, obviously, Kento passed the test, okay? So, yes. 
but <laughs> okay, but that is right. That is the, the question that the Asians kind of want to know. And so really, the Jewish audience was no different. This is exactly what they want to know. So the question that the Jews would have asked when Jesus comes is, what's his family background? Like, what's his family of origin? And this is where the genealogy comes in. And so Matthew, right off the bat, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, he establishes this fact right away. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew gets right to it. He establishes Jesus' uh, family record, and he says he is the son of David. This is, who Gene, uh, this is who Jesus is. Why David? Well, it was David to whom God gave this promise 700 years earlier that there would be someone seated on your throne and he will be seated on your throne forever and ever, and he will establish his kingdom. And this promise would come through the descendant of David. So Matthew says, okay, he checks that box. But then he says, in Matthew chapter 1, he is also the son of Abraham. Why Abraham? Because Abraham was given the promise from God that through your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. A clear reference to the future Messiah. So eventually, okay, we're going to look for the Messiah to come from Abraham, from David's line. And what Matthew is clearly showing right off the bat is, look, Jesus is clearly the legal heir to the throne of David. He is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He is God's chosen king to redeem, to reconcile, and to save the world from its sins. This is who Jesus is. And Matthew then even identifies Jesus as a Christ four times throughout this passage. He is the Christ. He is the king. He is the king. He is the king. This is who Matthew is saying. Now, that's good enough. So the question then is this. Why didn't Matthew just come out right and say it, right? Why does he have to list all these names? Why doesn't Matthew just simply say, look, Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the Messianic king. Why even bother with all these names? Well, if you look carefully at this genealogical record, you will notice something very fascinating. If you look at these names, um, these are names that the Jewish person listening to this list of names would have heard, and quite frankly, they would have been completely embarrassed by, like, like complete shame. Uh, a lot of people today will doctor or they will edit their resumes to make it look better than they actually are, right? Like I heard of, of a person who said, well, I attended Stanford University on their resume. In actuality, he took one seminar during a summer at, at Stanford, and he listed that as, well, I went to Stanford, right? See, it, it's kind of, you stretch the truth quite a bit to make yourself look a lot better than you actually are. And that was a common practice back then. 
But if you look at Matthew's genealogy, he does the actual opposite. He doesn't doctor it. He doesn't edit it. He doesn't redact it to make it look nicer. What he actually does is he includes a bunch of names that are like, there would be a real like blight, a real embarrassment on the Jewish people to hear. Who are these names? Well, there are several, but I want to focus on four in particular this morning. In this record, you have the names of four women, and to even include women in a genealogical record itself, in a very, very strongly patriarchal culture, like the Jewish uh, culture, would have been um, unheard of. Women were considered outsiders in that culture. And the fact that Matthew actually includes this in the, the record uh, itself would have kind of raised some eyebrows. But if you look at the names of these women, they weren't just any four women. Okay? These were some of the most controversial in the Bible. So, for example, the first one that's listed is Tamar. Do you guys know, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know who Tamar is, right? Tamar is a Canaanite woman who posed as a prostitute and then seduced her father-in-law to sleeping with her in order to bear a child. Why? Because her own husband was killed because of his wickedness. So this is Tamar in the Bible. The next name that's listed here is Rahab. Of, uh, the next woman is Rahab. She is not just a Canaanite, but she actually is a prostitute. And then you have the third name, and that is Ruth. Who is Ruth? Ruth is a Moabite woman. And to the Jews, the Moabites were considered absolutely unclean. Uh, they were not allowed to enter into the tabernacle or to the temple for worship. They were foreigners. They were excluded. Uh, they were looked down and they were despised upon. These are the Moabites. And then, to add a little bit of insult to injury, Matthew lists this about David. And he is the one to whom the promises of the future Messiah come, that on your throne will come the future Messiah. He will sit on your own throne. He will reign forever. And by the way, David was a father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. That's how the record listed. The, the wife of the wife of Uriah, the wife of Uriah. Who is the wife of Uriah? Bathsheba. Why not just say Bathsheba? Well, it was meant to be to highlight to the readers and the hearers the scandal. That's what it was meant to highlight. David, when he was fleeing from Saul in the wilderness, he had a collection of bodyguards. These guys are elite warriors. Okay? They're like his secret service agents, the elite bodyguards. They're called the mighty men. There are about 33 of them that's listed in the Bible. And these are the guys who, like you know, the secret service agents today, or whatever, they would have easily taken a bullet for King David. Like, 
we're going we're gonna to protect you at all costs. We will lay down our lives for you. We swear absolute allegiance and loyalty to you no matter what. These are the mighty men. And when uh, one of them, or when David ascends to actually become the king in Judah at the time, um, he actually, he had a mighty man uh, under his, uh, you know, among his bodyguards. His name was Uriah, the Hittite. And one day, King David is walking on the roof of his palace, notices Uriah's wife bathing. He lusts after Bathsheba, and then he abuses his authority as king, has Bathsheba escorted to his palace, he sleeps with Bathsheba, impregnates Bathsheba, and then basically, you know, long story short with that, he has Uriah the Hittite, he has him killed and executed on the front line of battle in order to cover up his sin and his wickedness. This is the controversy. This is, and they have a son together, and his name is Solomon. And this is who Matthew is emphasizing. He is saying, look, by the way, just to let you know, permanently, this was the wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah, that, that was her identity. And that is who David, you know, had committed sin with. And they bore then Solomon. If you look at these records to this point, you know what you see? What you're seeing is all the outsiders. You're seeing the moral, the cultural outsiders of society, the shameful of Israel's history, you're seeing all the embarrassment, the adulterers, prostitutes, includes incest, murder, betrayal. And this is the beginning of Matthew's gospel. This is how he introduces who Jesus comes from. And there's a couple points I, I think I just want to communicate out of this to tie it in with Advent hope as we look at this season of, of Advent. The coming of Christ, I think Matthew is trying to, to tell us, is this. The coming of Christ means the hope of eternal life as well as everyday life. The hope of eternal life as well as everyday life. The hope of eternal life is this. If Jesus comes from this line, if the Messiah comes from this line and it's checkered, it's, it's the past is is sinful, it's embarrassing, it's shameful. This shows us what kind of Savior Jesus is. The kind of Savior that Jesus is. Matthew's genealogy is simply saying, God is a saving God. He redeems, he saves people from sin, and nothing can stop God from saving souls, no matter what. This is tremendous help for you and I. This morning, it means that God can save you and I even when we're at our worst. It doesn't matter if you're a king, a prostitute, Jew, Gentile, moral, immoral. The beginning of Matthew's gospel is simply this is the genealogy, meaning beginning of Jesus. This is the hope. 
that if anyone wants to start anew with God, that promise is available to you even today. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, if you conceal your sin, you will not prosper. If you try to hide your sin, you know, it will result in death. But whoever confesses their sin and turns from it will find mercy. If you confess your sin before the Lord and you recognize, you know, I, I need a savior, I need salvation, I need forgiveness, I confess it and I want to turn from sin, I turn to you, Jesus. I want to begin anew. You will find mercy. This is the hope of eternal life. Anyone who desires a fresh start with God will find life. This is great hope. But it also shows us that God will use you and I, not despite, but even through your weakness. Not despite, but through your weakness. If you look at the other names in this genealogy, and there's, there's entire stories for each name. This record shows that God paradoxically uses not the strong, but he uses the weak. God chose Abraham, though he was prone to deception. God chose Jacob, even though he was the second born, not the first born. God chose David, even though he was the least likely among his brothers to be a king or to be recognized as a king. God chose Judah despite withholding his son to Tamar. But God saves the sinful and uses the weak to show his power and his glory. This is who God is to accomplish his purposes. This is great hope that you and I, that uh, it's not because of our weakness, or it's not despite our weakness, but, but through our weaknesses, God can use you and I for his kingdom. But there's a second hope, and that is the hope of everyday life. The hope of everyday life. If you look at this period of history and these names, um, the span of these names covering about 2,000 years of history, there are times throughout this whole time in each of these eras or, or generations where it seemed like God just completely forgot about his people. It seemed like God had completely abandoned them. And you know, and, the, and there are times when the Israelites were wondering, you know, where are you, God? You know, God, how could you leave us? How could you forsake us? Um, there are times when it felt like God had left his people out for dead, to dry. He left them in dead ends. God made these promises, but these promises seemed like nothing when they were exiled when they were taken captive and they, they were even, they put themselves in these situations because of their own disobedience to God. But the genealogy shows us this. Nothing will stop God's promises from being fulfilled. When God promises something, nothing can stop it. Not even his people, not even the rebellion, not their sin, not their disobedience. That cannot even stop it. And, and when it seems like God has abandoned his people and when things seem absolutely dark, like it's in the, the, the darkest moment, God is advancing his promises, his purposes in that, whether they recognize it or not. God knew what he was doing from the beginning. 
And God was directing everything to this moment when Jesus was born. This is what this record shows us. God is faithful. There are times in your everyday life here as a believer, and you just wonder, God, where are you? God, how could you say that you love us? I thought you were good. I thought you were faithful. You know, why, why, isn't, why aren't things happening the way that I thought that they were supposed to happen? And this is our hope for everyday life, is that God is not too fast, but he's not too slow, but he's right on time. Well, actually, let me take that back. God is always going to be slow. God is always going to, going to be way too slow for our time. But in his time, in his way, his timing is perfect. There are many times that we just want to see, we want to see things happen right now. We want to see his power. We want to see his righteousness. We want to see his kingdom. We want it to happen now. We want to see things made right in our lives, in our world, in our relationships. We want to see it right now. But God is timing. He just seems absent. He seems way too slow. And yet we see that God is actually fulfilling his very purpose. I, I want to show you uh, something that over 50 years ago, my parents made a bold move from Korea uh, where they had their lives established. And I, I kind of mentioned my family background uh, a few Sundays ago. And, uh, you know, my, my parents came from, again, uh, you know, kind of well-to-do backgrounds, um, both college-educated at a time when it was hard to get a college degree, uh, you know, my mother, uh, her, her father was a famous judge in Korea. But they left all of that behind in Korea uh, because there's a lot of, you know, corruption too that's happening, a lot of political turmoil. Uh, this was in the early 70s. And, uh, and they felt ultimately that they felt like America would give my brother and I a better chance at life, give us a better life in the long run. And so uh, I was looking back at kind of uh, my, my mom wrote kind of a memoir. It's interesting that in this memoir she wrote, uh, she remembers the day that they left, said their goodbyes, you know, to their family, to their parents. And at the time when you boarded an airplane, you know, it meant that you wouldn't see them for who knows how long. There was no such thing as Zoom or, you know, Skype or email or those kind of things. It's just, it meant really like goodbye, right? Um, and they boarded an airplane. It took 24 hours to go to travel from Seoul to Los Angeles at that time. And they had to make a layover in Hawaii to refuel the airplane. Okay, so that's what flight was like. And they came here to LA, to Los Angeles, and uh, she wrote this even in her memoir that, uh, you know, she 
what she envisioned about America, like it was, um, you know, everything she kind of envisioned was not completely true. She'd never been, but she was thinking this is like the promised land. But she saw uh, it was lonely. She felt intense loneliness. Think about it. You go to a new place, there's no family there to support you. You have no community, you have no friends. Right? You just go. And even the first day that they landed, they, you know, went, they settled into an apartment in, in L.A. somewhere. In that first day, uh, she was talking about how my brother and I were running around the apartment, you know, because we were just so excited at this new place. And then uh, she got a knock on the door, and it was some really cranky neighbor who said, like, keep it quiet. And that was her first day in America. And she felt then this intense pain, like, what do we do? Why did we come here? You know? And, uh, and then they open up a hamburger stand just to try to make ends meet, right? They, did, they faced years of struggle uh, just trying to establish their lives, their livelihood here, just to give my brother and I a better life. That was their hope, their dream. When my parents came, uh, none of them, my brother and I, none of us were believers, right? None of us were Christians. None of us knew who Jesus was. And I want to fast forward then to this. This is my parents, my brother, his family, uh, our family, and our expanding family, you could say. You know, and this is a recent picture, and Maddie and Sophie are thinking, oh, it's so embarrassing, that picture. <laughs> but anyway, this is our family, right? And I think, uh, contrast that to the photo earlier, like 50 years ago, 50 years. And what I see is this. When I look at this, uh, I see a photo where you have three different generations. And you, what I see is this history where there was a lot of struggle. There's a lot of things that uh, my brother and I, that we, were going, that we went through when we were growing up, and we saw our parents and all of that too. But what we see is God's faithfulness over 50 years. And we see his uh, through all the ups and downs, all the struggles, but we see God's favor and his grace. And what I see, when I see this photo too, is I'm so grateful that uh, my children, um, you know, that my brother, uh, my parents are now all believers in Jesus. You know, we went from not knowing who God was not knowing the joy of our salvation, not knowing uh, that Jesus is our Savior and our Lord, to now the greatest blessing, and that is that, G that God has poured out his salvation and that we know Jesus, the greatest blessing. This is what I see. And this is the hope. When I look at a picture like this and I see like in these gatherings, and I kind of see the whole picture, 
uh, it, re- it reminds me of God's faithfulness, his faithfulness over decades, over years. I'm going to ask you this question. In the, all the things that you are going through in your life, where is God calling you to trust him? Right? Where is God calling you to trust in his promises, his timing for the things in your life? There are people in your life that you're praying for spiritually. You're waiting and you're waiting. There's relationships in your life that are broken and that need healing. And you're waiting. When is this relationship going to be healed? There are things about school, about finances, health challenges that you are facing and you're wondering, you know, where is God in this? Um, maybe it's a ministry that you're serving in, but you feel discouraged because you don't see the fruit. Yet God is working in ways that you can't even see right now. I'm going to invite you just to come before the Lord. And as we go into this Advent season and we think about hope, this idea of hope, that we see that God's people throughout history have always waited. They've always longed to see hope, to see his promises, to see his redemptive power and his grace at work. And they waited and they waited. And sometimes they were confused and they were wondering, but God came and he was working the whole time. And he is faithful. When he promises something, he will be faithful to to fulfill that promise. We see it in his word. And we see it in his people. Now, I want to encourage your hearts in that direction. As you think about your own situation, where is it that you need a new beginning? Where is it that you need hope? And I invite you to come and to take. When you are ready, to take of this communion and say, Lord Jesus, uh, you came the first time. You paid the debt of my sin on that cross and I put my trust in you. You are my king and my savior. Uh, You are my hope. And Lord, I come repentantly even right now and I want to ask that you would just renew my belief in you, renew my faith. And Lord, I anticipate that you will come again. In the meantime, you are faithful. You are with me. You are going to fulfill your word, your promise. It is true. It will happen. Come uh, before the Lord in worship, in repentance, in prayer, in communion. And there are people in the back that if you want to pray with, they're available to pray with you in the back as well. There is one more thing I want to say. The the genealogical record, this is a record that was posted on the temple wall. So every Jew could look at this genealogical record. Well, this record was destroyed in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. And so now there's no official record anymore. The last name on this record is Jesus. Why? There's no need for a genealogy. 
we have Christ now. He is our hope. Hope has already come. Christ is everything that God was pointing to this whole time. And so this is where we put our hope. We have Jesus. So look to him. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We would love to hear from you and help you take one step closer to Jesus. To contact us or for more information, please go to www.thewellsgv.org.